I'm actually all by myself today. Uh, my wife and kids had somewhere that they needed to be this morning. So it's a weird, it's unusual for that to happen in 2020, for people to have places that they needed to be, but it happened today. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm in a building, in, in a whole house by myself. There's a hamster upstairs, um, but uh, otherwise, and then some dogs who may or may not be in the backyard or in the house, but otherwise it's, it's just me. So um, I'm not used to preaching literally to no one, but that seems to be what it's going, what's going on. So I'm going to assume somebody out there is, is with us. Um, one time, this, this is not at all in relation to the sermon. It's just a thing um, I'm going to tell you right now just because I thought of it. Um, before we started Collective, I was at a different church, and it was, uh, it was a multi-campus video church, which, which means that someone would preach in one location, and then that sermon would be recorded and then sent the next— it would, like, we'd do Saturday night service and record the Saturday night service, and then the Saturday night service recording would be sent to other campuses— campuses of the church to be, I guess, broadcast to, for lack of a better word, to, um, to, to the other campuses. And so there was, there was one Saturday night where I was preaching and someone's phone rang, someone's cell phone rang in the middle of the sermon. And I being myself, I commented on it and I made a joke about like, you know, if it's for me, tell them I'm busy or some stupid joke like that, that you make, you know, when someone's phone rings and you're in the middle of like public speaking. And people laughed and it was great because, um, you know, that's a sound I remember enjoying, the sound of, you know, a room full of people laughing. And, um, and so anyway, after, after the service was over, the guy who worked in the tech booth, like one of the media guys who like controlled the camera and the sound and everything, he comes over to me and he says, hey, I need you to stay back and do it again. And I said, what do you mean do it again? And he said, well, that lady's phone went off and we have to send this service over to the other campus. And so we need you to get back up on the stage and preach this, the whole sermon again. And I looked at him and I looked around the room and correctly observed that, hey man, there's, there's nobody here. Like there's no one here for me to preach this to. And he says, yeah, you just got to pretend. So that's what I did. Um, I, I preached an entire sermon to an empty auditorium, fully pretending that it was a full auditorium full of people for the theater of church. So that's what that was. So not since that day have I preached in a room by myself pretending uh, that, that, there, that there are people somewhere out there in, in the room somewhere who may or may not be, be within earshot of me. So, um, so I'm a little bit out of practice preaching into a camera with no other people in the room. So thanks so much for, for being with us. And um, I, I would jump over to the Facebook feed and just to see like if anybody wants to check in and say hi, but um, I'd be worried that I wouldn't be able to get back into here. My tech savvy is like, minimal. So we're just going to leave everything set up. I'm not going to touch any buttons. So if you're there and you're saying hi, I'll see that later. But uh, for right now, I'm genuinely afraid to mess with things when nobody else is here. So anyway, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 37. So we've been in this series off and on since January where we're looking through the book of Genesis. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of Genesis. We've We've observed lots of things in the book of Genesis, and we're going to start kind of winding it down. We're, we're going to do today, and then we're going to have probably two more weeks of the series. I had a lot more stuff mapped out, but as, uh, as you may or may not have noticed, the year 2020 has not quite gone as we had originally hoped it would. 
So, uh, so we're going to wind this series down and then October, November, uh, December, we're going to figure something else out. So, um, but it, it is, it, it is time to, uh, to begin landing the plane as it were, um, on the book of Genesis. So we're going to work. So today we're entering into the, the final kind of narrative arc of the book of Genesis. Sorry, this is one of the weird things about preaching from my dining room when no one else is here. Someone clearly was just lost in my neighborhood, but like parked their car right in front of my house on the curb to, I guess, check their GPS. So I thought, I thought it's possible that I'll be in the middle of preaching the sermon and like receive an Amazon package or something. That's always a possibility. So <clears throat> anyway, so we're, we're entering into kind of the final narrative arc of the book of Genesis, which is about primarily about a guy named Joseph. And we've been, what we've been doing is we've been sort of looking through, again, we've been kind of following along since Genesis 12, we've been sort of following along in this family lineage, beginning with Abraham, the guy named Abraham, and then his son Isaac, who we didn't really spend a whole lot of time on because quite frankly, the book of Genesis doesn't spend a whole lot of time on him. And then into Jacob, who we spent quite a bit of time on. And now Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons' name is Joseph. And a lot of the final few chapters of the book of Genesis is devoted to the narrative arc of this guy, Joseph. And we're not going to be able to look at all the, the stuff in the Joseph story. It's just there's a lot. I mean, quite frankly, the Joseph story could be a book of the Bible unto itself. But also, this is pretty well-trod territory. This is, if you grew up in any sort of church environment, if you've seen Veggie Tales, if you've, um, if you've consumed a lot of, like, media made for Christians at any point in your life, it's possible that you've heard a lot about the Joseph narrative. If you've been to a musical, um, I, I just re I just remember there is a musical, Joseph and the Technical uh, Dreamcoat. And so like there's, the story has been told quite a bit. And so there's a lot of territory here that quite frankly, I, di I didn't think we would be best served just retreading a lot of the same territory. But there is some pretty interesting stuff to, to be dealt with within these stories. So we are going to spend the next couple of weeks, but we're probably not going to talk about the stuff that you're used to hearing people talk about when we look at these stories. So that was, that was a long way into the introduction. So now we're, we're looking at Genesis chapter 37, which, which begins sort of the transition out of the Jacob narrative and into the, the Joseph and his brother's narrative. So uh, beginning in Genesis 37, by the way, if you're on our website, uh, collectivechurch.net, this passage is just below this video right here. So uh, that's where you can find that. So in Genesis 37, this is what it says. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought, I, I never fail to cringe um, anytime I read like that, that type of sentence. His father's wives... That always, I don't know, that always stops me in my tracks, no matter how many times I've read stuff like this. Anyway, so his father's wives, and he brought, he, Joseph, brought their father a bad report about them. So Joseph is, I mean, he's clearly the family favorite. The brothers, for one reason or another, are not doing the work that they're expected to do. And Joseph, being the guy who likes being the favorite, makes sure and let his dad know that the brothers weren't doing their job. So then it says, now Israel slash Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. This is the famous coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So things are going great. What we have here in this family 
is we have a dynamic of lots of siblings. One of the siblings has been lifted up and placed on a pedestal above, over and above the others. There's been no secret about it. The father's actually kind of making a show of it with the coat or with the robe, the ornate robe. And um, I'm sure nothing bad can happen when a parent expresses favoritism towards one child over the rest of them. That's always gone well for everyone in my experience. So then in Genesis chapter 37, if we jump down to verse 23, it says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. So we're a little further down into the story. And at this point, the brothers have decided we've had it with this. We, it's not just that our dad is playing favorites and it's not just that even though he's like the 11th in line, he's probably going to receive the bulk of the inheritance, which would be pretty unjust by, by the standards of, that, of this system at the time. But there's also just the thing of like, they're just kind of tired of it. So they've had it up to here. And um, as many people do when they're resolving tension between siblings, they decide to plot to kill him. So it says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into a cistern or like a well. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So good news, he's not going to drown in the well. So then in verse 25, it says, as they sat down to eat their meal, like a bunch of psychopaths, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah saw, who was one of the brothers, Judah saw, said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So the rationale here is like, look, we could kill him, but that would be mean. So let's sell him into slavery because, you know, we're family. So then it says, when Reuben, who's the oldest, returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, sk I skipped the, the bit. It's, so they, they sell it. So it says, when the Midianite merchants came by his brothers, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. So now, back to where I was a second ago. When Reuben, the oldest, returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Because Reuben realizes like as the oldest, the blame for this, if something happens to Joseph, it's not like everything's gonna be fine. It's not like dad's gonna be sad and then get over it. He's gonna blame one of us and Reuben being the oldest fully knows like he's gonna be the one that gets blamed, which seems to be fine with the others. You know, cause once you've murdered or once you've plotted to murder then slash sell a brother into slavery, throwing another brother under the bus a little bit is probably not super far outside of your moral purview. So, so Reuben is super upset about this. Um, and then in verse 31, it says, then no response to Reuben's fear, by the way, they just keep working at this. They've, they've got a plan and set in motion. They're not going to worry about Reuben freaking out. So that in verse 31, it says, they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He, Jacob, recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. So not only do they do this to their, to their brother Joseph, then they go back and they watch their father's like heart get ripped out of his chest. And they're like, let's just keep quiet. Let's, let's just keep this to ourselves. 
Sure, our father is devastated beyond recognition. His heart is shattered. He will never be the same. But look, Joseph's gone, so everything's fine. So that's how the story kind of shakes out. Um, and obviously more things unfold as a result of this. This is sort of, the, again, the beginning of a long, in fact, this is often the last, chapters 37 through the end of Genesis is often referred to as a novella because it really just sort of follows a singular narrative arc going through kind of the Joseph story. But, but we know, because we've been going through Genesis for like 21 weeks now, 21 parts off and on for the year, we know that this is not the first family conflict we've seen in the book of Genesis. This isn't the first family conflict we've seen involving Jacob. So the story didn't come out of a vacuum. Like if, if, if we've been following along in the book of Genesis at all, we're fully aware like, oh, there's a pattern here that we've sort of been observing the whole time. The story did not come out of nowhere. It follows a series of stories that we've already seen and spent a lot of time with you know, before now. So Joseph's father, Jacob, um, if you go back 10 chapters, because we're going to revisit that for a second. So Joseph, or Joseph's father, Jacob, before, if you'll remember, also had a brother. And Joseph, or Jacob and his brother Esau were each a parent parental favorite. And that created lots of tension. So in, um, ver, or chapter, in Genesis chapter 27, so 10 chapters earlier, verse 6, it says this. It says, Rebecca, who is Jacob's father, Jacob's, sorry, Jacob's mother, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. So again, if you'll remember, the plan was Esau is the oldest, thus the, the natural heir to all the blessings that will go into whatever, whatever the family slash the father possesses. So Esau is told, you will receive a blessing from your father, or, uh, from your father Isaac. But Rebekah, whose favorite is Jacob, who is not the firstborn by like half a minute, but still, by, by all rules and of the system, that still makes him the secondborn. So now Rebekah has decided, oh no, my favorite child, Jacob, is actually going to get what the oldest child is legally entitled to. So we're going to work the system in kind of a way. So it says, Rebecca said to her son, look, I overheard your father say this. Um, then it says in verse eight, it says, now, this is Rebecca talking to Jacob. It says, now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flocks and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So they concocted this whole, you know, deception of an elderly blind father in order to steal some sort of blessing that rightfully belongs to a different brother. So then in verse 14, if you jump down, it says, so he, Jacob, went and got them and brought them to his mother and she prepared them, uh, she, she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older brother, which she had in the house and she put on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with, and this is not insignificant, goat skin. And you may be thinking like, that seems like a super mundane detail, but it's not insignificant at all. So hold that thought. Then in verse 17, it says, then she handed her to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. So, so there, is, there is a deception that goes into fooling an elderly father who's playing favorites with a different brother. And there's, so there's lots and lots of parallel elements in the story. Again, you have an elderly father of, of grown sons and the father has played favorites. And one of the other sons has created, has concocted some sort of like 
big deception in order to trick the father into not blessing the favorite son. And how do they do it? So again, that's one of the parallels. The presentation of a familiar garment, because he's wearing Esau's clothes, um, and then later he's presented with the ornate robe that, that had belonged to, to Joseph. But also even the detail, remember the goat skins? Even the detail of someone kills a goat to cover up the crime in both stories. So there's all sorts of parallels. By the way, there's a really interesting book called The Art of Biblical Narrative by a guy named Robert Alter. There's a whole chapter in here about all the different parallels between all these stories that end up with the Joseph story, about how like the Joseph story isn't just a thing that shows up at the end of Genesis out of nowhere. It's This has been building. These patterns have been set in place like long before we get to Joseph. It's just Joseph is sort of like the final culmination of, of the patterns that have been accumulating this whole time. Again, all the way down to like a goat has to die in order to cover up the crime. But, but the thing is, this is the, the Jacob story, or the Jacob and Esau story, that's not even where the pattern starts. It's not, I mean, there, there is a sort of like weird, sick justice to this because Jacob is sort of getting the thing that, that he dealt to his older father just in a much more severe and tragic way. So it's, it's like, Jake, I mean, this, this, is, this is literally like Jacob getting what's coming to him. In, in a certain kind of sense, in, in a certain way. But it doesn't actually begin with Jacob. This isn't where the pattern starts. Jacob's father, Isaac, was also the family favorite. Because if you'll remember, Isaac has an older brother named Ishmael. In fact, uh, Isaac's older brother Ishmael and his mother Hagar not only were passed over and not the favorite, but they were even cast out of the family when Isaac was young. Take a look at Genesis 21. We, we didn't look at this before, but this is kind of a harrowing part of the story. So Ishmael has been born. Like Abraham has a firstborn son, but then Isaac comes along and all of a sudden Ishmael is old news. So in Genesis 21 verse 8, it says this. This is the child, uh, meaning Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was, or, yeah, and the, and the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast because we all hold great feasts the day that our newborn baby has been weaned. So then it says, um, but Sarah, who is Isaac's mother, Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman. She can't even say her name. Get rid of that slave woman and her son. Not your son, her son. Sarah is fully disowning the entire Ishmael story. So it says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. So the whole thing starts off with, like from the very beginning, from the Abraham story on, it begins with one son being passed over for another and kind of like unjustly being treated as a result. And so then in verse 14, it totally, Abraham does exactly what he's told. In verse 14, it says, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulder and sent them off and then sent off her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. So Abraham has an older son, has Ishmael. Because of the circumstances surrounding all of that, and because Isaac shows up and Isaac becomes the favorite, Ishmael gets tossed in the garbage. Then a generation later, Isaac has a favorite son, and that favorite son ends up getting the short end of the stick in favor of his less favorite son. And then, who is Jacob? And then Jacob has 12 sons, chooses a favorite son, and then that son ends up 
being the victim of some pretty horrific violence. And then Jacob is, is then deceived about it. Do you see how the pattern has been accumulating the whole time? This story has been building for 20 chapters. We've been seeing, we've, we've been seeing this coming for a long, long time. So the writer highlights all of these details over and over and over again because we're supposed to notice that there is this recurring pattern in, in this family. The things that happen in this family don't come out of nowhere. They came from somewhere. They were learned from someone. Jacob was raised in an environment built on fighting for the love of a parent and then lying and stealing in order to receive some amount of val validation. And this pattern ultimately destroys his family. Remember, Jacob has to run for his life. Esau vows to kill Jacob. Jacob never sees his father again. So Jacob participates in a deception that destroys his family. And now Jacob has been deceived, and that deception has destroyed his family. So the pattern continues to destroy. This pattern was so deeply embedded into Jacob's environment that he doesn't even realize that he's creating the exact same pattern all over again. The whole time he's making his ornate robe to give to Joseph, there's never one part of his brain that thinks, wait a minute, this feels familiar. This feels, this feels a lot like the thing that happened just before Esau threatened to kill me. And I had to spend 20 years on the run and not with my family. Never once occurs to him that he's participating in the same pattern that almost destroyed him. This, by the way, this kind of echo and rhyming, it happens all over the place in Genesis. Remember how Abraham tried to tell different world leaders that Sarah, his wife, was actually his sister? And then one generation later, his son Isaac does exactly the same thing to his wife, Rebecca. Like you see, like these stories aren't just like, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. If you look at the book of Genesis from like a larger, like a 10,000 foot view, and you begin to start to notice all these patterns continue to show up over and over and over again. We, we continue to see like, oh, okay, so one person does something, and then that pattern of behavior is inherited and passed on to the next generation, and then the next generation, and the next generation. So... What does that have to say if, if we're looking at this and we're thinking like, okay, this is an interesting sort of thing that the narrator is pointing out, but is there something more profound here? Is it possible that rather than just telling us like, isn't it interesting that these things keep happening over and over again? Is it possible that what the text is actually trying to do is point out the fact that we're all recipients of a story that, that started long before we got here and that for a lot of us, we are kind of just swimming in the same water and we don't even know that we are? It may, I mean, maybe you grew up with some specific patterns. And maybe if you do enough digging, you might notice that you continue to create those same patterns because that's all you ever knew. It's possible that you grew up with something and the thing that you grew up with or the thing that you were passed or that was passed on to you was pretty unhealthy and pretty toxic and, and maybe really, really harmful. But it's also possible that you haven't taken the time to really notice those patterns and that now you've got kids. And the new questions are, am I now passing on those patterns? Or is it possible, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with your kids. Maybe it's just like this type of thought pattern, this type of behavior, this type of way of seeing this, this, the world was sort of everywhere when I was a kid. And now as an adult, I'm still sort of breathing in that oxygen, but it doesn't seem to be working like I thought it would. And so it's possible that we've all sort of been handed these systems and these patterns and these, these ways of seeing the world. And we haven't really taken the time to ask questions about like, wait a minute, is it possible that we need to start some new patterns here? Is it possible that something new has to be born, but in order for something new to be born, something else has to die? The old patterns have to be stopped. 
at some point, someone has to stop the cycle. So the overarching narrative of Genesis reminds us that there are these patterns and these points of conflict, and they're not new. They're as old as humanity itself. And so if you find yourself in a cycle of family tension and doing the same, like seeing your parents struggle with something, and then now as an adult, you continue to sort of live in that same like toxic ecosystem, it's possible that, that maybe the best thing you can do is just stop and take a minute and observe and think like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe, maybe the pattern here needs to be disrupted because this is not new. It's, it's as old as the story of humanity itself. Take a look at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. And one of the things that we've tried to point out a lot in this series is that one of the things that's important to remember about Genesis is that Genesis isn't just like it's the first book in the Bible and so we read it first. That's not really the most interesting thing about the book of Genesis. One of the things that makes Genesis what it is and why it's interesting and potent is because the reason we have Genesis in the form that we have it now is because several generations later, um, the, the people when we talked about this several weeks ago, the people of Israel are exiled to Babylon. Their city is, is burned, their temple is destroyed, and the citizens of Jerusalem are taken to a different place. And they're told they can't go home again. And they've lost, they feel like they've lost their cultural and religious identity. And one of the ways that they try and preserve their identity is telling these stories to each other over and over and over again. The reason we have Genesis in the form that we have it, in these stories in the way that we have them, is because during the Babylonian exile, these are the stories that people told each other over and over and over again as a way of holding on to where they came from. So anytime you're reading any sort of literature from the time of the exile, one of the things that's kind of helpful to sort of round out the narrative is to remember that the people who are writing and hearing these things were, were deeply aware of the Genesis patterns of the stories and the recurring motifs that show up over and over and over again. So in Exodus, or I'm sorry, in Ezekiel, which is a, which is a document that was created during the exile. So in Ezekiel chapter 18, you have this prophet, and this is what he says. He writes, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is an old like figure of speech that existed long before this book did. And it's the, the figure of speech about sour grapes. Like The parents eat the sour grapes, and the children taste the bitterness, basically. What that means is that what, what the parents do, the children have to live with, which to a certain extent is, is right. Like we, Again, no one is born in a vacuum. But what's interesting here is the writer is saying, maybe, maybe stop saying that. <laughs> you know, like th there's a dominant way of thinking that this writer is, is pointing out. The dominant way of thinking is our parents made mistakes and that's why our lives are hard. Our parents made mistakes and I guess we're just sort of stuck in the same hamster wheel that our parents were stuck in or that previous generations were stuck in, and there's nothing really we can do about it. There, this was the per pervasive kind of way of seeing the world at the time, and which betrays a lot of like fatalism and despair. Like if you believe that there's nothing new here and we can't change anything, and we're just sort of stuck in the same patterns over and over again, that leads to a lot of like very dark, fatalistic, despair-oriented thinking. So basically, like I'm just suffering for what my parents did, and I, I just have to sort of live with those consequences, and I don't have any sort of power over my own circumstances. But again, this is not just about people who lived thousands of years ago. Years ago, So again, maybe you grew up in a family system and you've wondered if you're powerless against the patterns and the systems that you came from. 
maybe you feel like your teeth are on edge because your parents ate sour grapes. And this, this writer is saying, like, maybe, maybe we can do better than that. So then if we keep going, in verse 3, it says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Which is funny because they're not in Israel. They're in Babylon. But in Israel, he's referring to, like, as a people. He's reminding them, like, you have an identity. And just because you're in exile doesn't mean you've lost your identity. And so, so he says, don't say that. The whole thing about sour grapes, our parents ate sour grapes and so now our teeth are on edge. Like, he, it's so funny. Like, he's saying, like, stop saying that. That's, maybe don't say that anymore. Certain verse 4 says, For everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who die, who will die. And if, again, if we read that, like, the one who sins is the one who will die, that sounds very ominous. But to people who believe that they have to live with the consequences of what previous generations did with no power of their own to change things, the, when, when he says the one who sins is the one who died, what he's saying, what, what the writer here is saying is, like, no, everyone gets to make their own choices. Everyone gets to carve a new path. Like, yeah, you've been handed something. Yeah, you have a, you have a, a, a pattern and a story that you were born into, but you're not a prisoner to it. You can, you can choose to acknowledge it and know what, it is, what patterns you're working with, and then you can choose to break those patterns. I think the people at this time would have read the Joseph narrative and seen these patterns over, or heard, because like, it was mostly oral tradition at the time, heard the Joseph narrative and the narratives that came before it and thought like to them, I mean, with, in light of the Ezekiel passage here, would have said like, maybe the power in these stories is that Joseph has a way out. Like that th these brothers do have an opportunity to change the pattern. And yeah, they mostly don't. But at a certain point, the pattern does get disrupted a little bit. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But I mean, feel free to read ahead if you're just dying to know what happens next. But what's, what's being said here is like, you don't have to just live in, in this ecosystem that was created by generations before you as if you have no power here. You, you get to be the adult now. You get to change the patterns if you want to. So then look at how it sort of unfolds. And it gets a little bit tedious, but it, it has a point. So in verse... Uh, Three, I'm sorry, no, uh, verse nine, it says, he follows, or it's talking about like a, a faithful person. It says, he follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my law. The, that man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the Lord. So this is like a person who makes good choices will live at, like will live in a world in which he is in one way or another benefiting from making wise choices. Then if you jump down uh, to verse 10, it says, suppose he, the righteous man, has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things. So then it sort of um, kind of unfolds a little bit there and then um, basically saying that the violent son is going to have to live in a world created by that violence and is going to have to sort of live in the, in the tragic aftermath of all of those things. And then in verse 14, it says, but suppose that this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits and though he sees them, he does not do such things. In other words, the, the son of the, of the violent man can change the pattern. And then if you jump down, continue to jump down even further and further and further in verse 30, it says, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the, the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Now, first of all, the word repent in Hebrew is the word shuv or teshuva. And it doesn't mean feel really bad and apologize a bunch. Teshuva literally means to return, to become 
who you were meant to be. Which, by the way, to say to a group of people in exile, return, is a way of saying, like, you don't have to wait to be sent home to become who you were meant to be. You can, you can be in exile and still return to who you were originally created to be. That's, that's the invitation. When, when you hear this writer say, repent, that's what's being said. It's not just like, feel really bad. It is, yeah, you're, you're far from who you were meant to be, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to just, you're not a prisoner in the way that you think you are. You may be a prisoner physically, but you can still choose to change the patterns that you have power over. And so that's sort of the point of this. And he even uses this interesting expression where he says, creating yourself a new heart and a new mind. So, um, in fact, this new heart motif shows up again in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, it says, um, for I, same writer, um, using the, speaking in the voice of God, says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I will help you break the patterns that have been killing you. I will give you a new set of patterns. I will give you a new way of being in the world. In Ezekiel, people have very little energy because that's what exile does. Exile saps us of all the energy and hope and, um, and excitement and imagination a lot of times that we might have. And that's sort of where the people who are receiving this word from Ezekiel, that's where they are. And perhaps that's why in this text, God offers to give them a new heart and a new spirit because the old one is worn out. The patterns have killed us in so many different ways. And this writer, or in, in the text, God is saying, you don't have to continue living in this pattern. You get to make your own pattern. You get to make your own way in the world. You get to, you get to help shape your own story. You, you, can, you can participate in a story in which you have a new heart and a new spirit. You don't have to keep spinning in the same wheel over and over and over again. So I, th I think this, along with the Joseph narrative and all the things that came before it, this places some questions in our lap. Questions like, what, what kinds of things have you been carrying? What, what's been putting your teeth on edge? Maybe, um, maybe you carry a lot of anger. Maybe if you think back hard enough, you see that that anger came from a place. That anger maybe was modeled for you. Or maybe um, the, the fact of the pattern itself has made you angry. And so maybe you're having some, some difficulty kind of reckon, reckoning with that. Maybe you've got some anxiety. And if you look back, you realize like, oh yeah, I grew up in a house where everything was measured by success and failure. And no matter what I did, it was never good enough. And no matter how hard I tried, I, I couldn't try hard enough. And I was always competing with for attention and love and support and affirmation. And that has created a lot of insecurity. It's created a lot of anxiety and that's created a pattern. Maybe, maybe you grew up with some trauma and you're having a hard time moving past the trauma because it's so easy to get dragged back into the traumatic patterns that were created a long time ago. Um, what, what's, been, what's been putting your teeth on edge? Maybe you're caught in a pattern of violence or toxic behavior. Maybe you're caught in a way of seeing things that is really doing no good for anybody. Maybe the pattern has been with you for generations. Maybe if you go back far enough, you, you begin to see like, oh, that's where that started. That's where 
that's where that began. I um, I don't know. I if you're in therapy, you you know, like as as I am, you you know, like there, this is a big part of of the work of therapy, right? The work of therapy is to sort of lay out all the things that are going on inside of you and to begin to articulate like, oh, this started when I was seven. Like like all this anxiety and all this tension that I'm carrying around, it didn't start when my job got harder, when the pandemic started. It actually started 32 years ago when I had a conversation with a, with a grown-up and then that got my wheels spinning. And now all of a sudden, 32 years later, I'm like, like paralyzed with anxiety. Why? Because the pattern got started a long, long time ago. And sometimes it takes like a professional therapist to sit down and kind of help you unpack all the stuff that came between those two points and to say like, okay, do you see how this one thing sent you on a journey that landed you here today? How the pattern started a long time before you got here to this moment. So maybe you've caught a pattern or maybe you're just sort of in the middle of crisis or a moment of despair, or a moment of just like, I don't know what to do next, and things are not going great. And you're trying to figure out like, when did this start? Surely this didn't start just in the last six months. Surely this has been with me for a little while. Yeah, it probably has. It's it's probably because there, there, there are patterns that you were handed a long time ago, and maybe you don't even know what those patterns are. And I think the story of Joseph is a way of saying like, yeah, you see what happens when we don't notice the patterns? You see what happens? when we continue just perpetuating and running the same tapes over and over and over again. So what would, to, to use the language of Ezekiel here, what, what would a new heart and a new spirit look like for you? Would it look like choosing to be a person who's more forgiving when all, like the thing that was modeled for you is bitterness and lording things over people and like the power and leverage look like always having the upper hand by always being the one who's the most outraged? Um, so maybe breaking the pattern is I need to become a person who's a lot more able to forgive or maybe being able to show grace to people or to yourself, maybe to be a little more forgiving to yourself and a little more patient with yourself. Maybe that's not a thing that was modeled for you. Maybe that's not a pattern you were ever exposed to. Maybe, maybe it's a sense of peace and calm. Maybe a new heart and a new spirit is to say, like, I've, I've been living in this cycle of panic and anxiety for way, way too long. And now whatever peace and calm can look like, whatever any sort of like inner sense of whatever that looks like, that maybe that's the new spirit. Maybe that's the new heart for me. Would it look like choosing to love instead of hate or indifference towards other people? What, what, would, what would it look like to break the patterns? What would it look like to say, like, I don't have to continue telling the same stories over and over again. I don't have to continue repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, the patterns are there, but it doesn't mean I have to be enslaved to the patterns. You don't have to live like this. Tomorrow can be different from today. You can choose to break the patterns. You can, again, to borrow Ezekiel's language, you can choose to open yourself up to a new heart and a new spirit. You can say, like, maybe... Maybe there's a better story. Maybe there's a, maybe we can return to who we were originally meant to be and not just the version of ourselves that we were handed through, through years and years and years of repeating the same patterns over and over and over again. So may you be set free from any destructive or toxic pattern that you, that's been hanging over you or you've been sort of living within for a long time. May you finally find that there is possible 
there, there is the, the possibility for some grace and peace when you break the pattern. And it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. And all, quite often, it's a daily struggle to break the pattern. Pattern a, a 30 to 40 to 50 year pattern doesn't break overnight. This is a daily hard work. And whatever that looks like, if it means calling a therapist, it means if it means checking in on somebody, if it means just changing the way we our, our default position is when we receive information, whatever that looks like, may you find it. May you may you find that there is a new spirit being um, being birthed inside of you. May you find that there is a new heart that you have access to. May you find that grace and peace are more possible than you thought. Let me pray for us. God, may we break the patterns that we were given. If those patterns are in any way harmful or toxic or cause pain either to ourselves or to others, we acknowledge the hard work of this. We acknowledge that there is a daily struggle. May we open ourselves up to grace and peace. May we return to who we were originally created to be. May we find that we are not slaves to the patterns. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.